0: So welcome
1: to Food Freedom Radio, where we nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a community gardener, and a person who knows cheap food is not cheap. Not only is cheap food not cheap, but cheap food has enormous environmental impacts. In fact, the way people eat now is a leading driver of climate change. Want to be part of the solution to the climate crisis? Know thy diet. Karen Nelson johnson is not able to be with us today, but behind the glass is Eric. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. Good morning. Do you you think about food and climate change?
2: Um, I try to be aware of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of silly. It's like uh, food and climate change. But uh, in studio, we've got two uh, people who deeply understand the connections between food and climate. Uh, George Booty um, was the former executive director for 23 years of the Land Stewardship Project and now serves as a science and special project leader. And Dan Gallagher is a professor and the interim director for the Healthy Foods, Healthy Lives Institute at the University of Minnesota. His research interests include dietary influences on colon cancer, particularly the effects effects of pre and po- probiotics. So welcome to the show. So Thank first you. of all, let's start talking about the symposium that you have coming uh, next Friday. What is happening next Friday?
3: The, uh, the Healthy Foods, Healthy Lives Institute uh, sponsors a symposium every year at the university. And this year we chose the theme of a vegetarian versus omnivorous diets. And so we're calling it meat or no meat. So we want to talk about the benefits of a diet that contains meat, but also the problems associated with that and the possible health benefits of a vegetarian diet versus an omnivorous diet. And so what we've tried to do is create a symposium that's going to present, uh, if you will, both sides of the issues related to um, um, diets that contain meat versus diets that are vegetarian. So we're approaching it both from a nutritional point of view as well as an environmental point of view, and even a cultural point of view. So uh, we'll have speakers speaking to all those different issues at the symposium.
1: And the public is welcome to attend. you want um, to get the word out on this?
3: Yes, we do. We would like very much to uh, attract members of the public that have an interest in this topic. Uh, the symposium will begin a- around uh, 8.30 in the morning, and uh, with a registration cost uh, of $65 you, you and that both. includes lunch
1: from Birchwood. Breakfast
3: and lunch. <laughs> Breakfast and lunch Birchwood for Birchwood
1: Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so,
3: so you should come just for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Wanda, how do people register?
3: Uh, you can register online. If you go to the uh, Healthy Foods, Healthy Lives Institute website, there's a link, and that is hfhl.umn.edu.
1: Okay, so meat or no meat. Correct. All right. I I, I want to put this in the context of the university being a land-grant institution, Mm -hmm. because I absolutely love the university. What does it mean to be a land-grant institution, and as a land-grant institution, asking these critical questions like meat or no meat how mm-hmm. does that tie in together
3: the uh, the land grant system was actually created at the time of abraham lincoln it's been around that long and what uh, abraham lincoln signed into uh, to law was a system of creating in every state a land a grant of land hence the name land grant where uh, agriculture and what they called the mechanical sciences were going to be studied mm-hmm. and so every state has a land grant University. Ours happens to be here at the University of Minnesota, and specifically on the St. Paul campus, which is where I work. So, uh, for example, another land-grant university would be University of Illinois-Champaign-Urbana. So, these are the focuses, foci of uh, agricultural and agricultural engineering type research, and folded into that is the study of nutrition and food science as well. So that's all considered part of the the agricultural enterprise.
1: Great. And then what's the Healthy Lives Institute?
3: The Healthy Lives, Healthy uh, Healthy Foods, Healthy Lives Institute was created uh, by the central uh, administration of the university to uh, give grants to study the intersection between food agriculture, and health, as well as food safety. And so we've been around, as I said, for a while, 10 years, and we uh, have people submit grants, uh, proposals to us. Some are from faculty to do research just within the University of Minnesota, but we also have a pretty significant community grant program. So members of the community can partner with members of the university to write a grant to study some aspect of how agriculture uh, food and health uh, interact.
1: Okay, and Laura, can I add to
4: that discussion a little bit? In terms of a land-grant university, one, uh, another part of the university are the research and outreach centers around the state. Good point, yes. And the one in Morris, the West Central Research and Outreach Center, has a very unique uh, research operation going on in that it's a organic pasture-based dairy side-by-side with a conventional dairy. So they can actually study the different impacts of this, and they have looked at it a little bit in terms of food as well, and some of the dietary components of the, of the milk that comes out of those different systems. Um, so that's an example of the, of the land-grant kind of mission. Mm-hmm. I, one of the ways that we think about the land-grant is that it serves the public. Rather than, the, the say, the agricultural corporations, they do what's best for their bottom line. So when they work on crops, they do a lot of work on corn soybeans, for example. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to do work on organic dairy. They're not going to do work on the new cover crops that we need in order to, to minimize the consequences of corn and soybeans. That has to be in the public domain, and therefore we need tax dollars to pay for that. So increased tax dollars to pay for research and for the university is a benefit to the public.
3: Yeah, so this is all... Uh, exactly correct what George is saying. And so the university can undertake the kinds of research projects that are very new, very risky. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them fail, okay. as is as, as always the case with research. And so uh, the university serves as sort of this um, a fair partner to, to broker all different kinds of ideas. And I think that's what sets the university apart from some of these commercial enterprises.
5: Yeah,
1: and I know this is kind of a jump, but and, and I, George Booty, you were uh, I want to make sure our audience knows that you uh, were the executive director of the Land Stewardship Project for 23 years. Um, so, But what, the jump I wanted to make was um, before the show started, we were talking about uh, under Reagan, you were told to get big or get out of farming and, and, and the consequences to Minnesota of that way of thinking about agriculture that started in the 80s. And someone said, um, instead of having my neighbor's land, I'd rather have my neighbor's. You know, can we connect this to to the way the farming system is? Because this industrial system, you know, they get big, get all the calories, produce all the calories, you know, feed. We got to feed all. I mean, there's there's just this Mordar stuff towards it instead of this or a zombie type of economics instead of something living.
4: It uh, that did come out of. Uh, uh... Well, even pr- during the Reagan years during the Earl Butts, when he was Secretary of Agriculture, that was kind of his mantra, "Get bigger, get out, plant fence row, fence row, because we got to export." Um, and uh, that didn't work. It led to a farm crisis, and it led to very high levels of erosion because we weren't planting those commodity crops with proper pr- practices. Now that's not the farmer's fault exactly. They were told to do that. By the university, by uh, banks, by the government policy, by the, the, the corporations that wanted to sell input to them to grow those crops and to buy the products from them. So farmers did what they were asked to do. But nevertheless, um, I think uh, one of the things that we've seen that's resulted from that is a the, is the declining number of farmers who've kind of extracted wealth Out of the rural countryside, moved it to St. Louis, (laughs) the headquarters of Monsanto, uh, Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. where Cargill is, and so forth. Um, We've extracted a lot of wealth from the countryside, and we've seen a, a, a fewer number of landowners or very large farmers owning more and more of the land. So it's hard for beginning farmers to get started, especially beginning farmers who want to grow the kinds of crops that people are asking for to eat that for example you mentioned Seward co-op was on the yeah you know, we the, love steward co-op yeah and and they need growers um, the, you know that market is expanding uh not just there but other places too so so it's harder for a beginning farmer that wants to grow vegetables for example for us to eat or or food products that we might eat to get access to land uh, because it's concentrated in ownership that's one of the results of that kind of policy mm-hmm.
1: Well, and and then I think everyone wants to eat um, in ways that are sustainable for future generations. And so let's bring this back to this conference on meat or not meat. I mean, how do I, as a consumer, eat in a way that supports my grandchildren?
3: That's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and there's differences of opinions, uh, as most people probably know. It takes a great deal of of energy to grow meat. You know, a lot of uh, plant material has to go into producing a relatively small amount of meat. So that's, that's one issue. The flip side of that though, is that uh, cows, for example, can eat food we can't eat. And so they can convert like uh, uh, grasslands into something edible. We can't eat grass, but cows can, and then we can eat the cows. So there are, it's, it's not a black and white issue. And so that's it's
1: complicated. Life it, is very is complicated. complicated
3: and, and there's no uh, perfect answer. And you know, we have consumed meat, uh, humans have consumed meat for as long as we've been humans. So uh, that is part of the issue is that this is something we've evolved to do. We have, we have become humans as meat eaters. And so does it make sense to completely eliminate uh, meat in the diet or is, does it make more sense to change how we raise meat? And maybe that's more the issue. And the quantity. So maybe, you know, a little is good, but uh, a lot is not so great. So these are all the issues that will be addressed at the symposium that we'll be having on Friday.
1: Okay. And, again, that's uh, this coming Friday, Friday, April 6th. Um, and for, for people to register, how do they register for that?
3: Yeah. Go to the uh, the website for Healthy Foods, Healthy Lives. It's hfhl.umn.edu. Edu.
1: So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. We are live. Uh, Karen Nelson Johnson is not able to be with us today. I'm Laura Hedlund. The live call-in number is 952-946-6205. A meat-based diet or a plant-based diet, uh, which is better for the environment? Um, this is Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.
6: You are somebody but I don't know.
0: Six years ago, Dr. Emily Stein was confronted with a life-changing situation. Her grandmother developed rheumatoid arthritis and was unable to maintain her own dental hygiene. Unfortunately, her assisted living facility didn't have the resources to help her maintain her dental health either. Once her dental health deteriorated, her overall health deteriorated too. It wasn't long until she had multiple tooth extractions and a severe stroke. That's when Emily put her Stanford background in microbiology and immunology to work. She created an oral care lozenge, or Smart Mint, that manages oral bacteria to promote strong teeth, healthy gums, and fresh breath. Daily Dental Care is a life sciences company dedicated to addressing public health by targeting the root cause of dental disease. Because let's face it, we all could use a little extra help supplementing our daily dental care routine. Visit dailydentalcares.com or go to Amazon to purchase our lozenges and use promo code DDC95002 for a 25% discount on your first purchase.
2: These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Daily dental care lozenges are not intended to replace daily dental hygiene practices.
4: It's a good day to be
2: indigenous. Native Roots Radio presents I'm Awake, our weekly Native American talk radio show will discuss national and local Native American news and events. Local and national guests will help us keep current with Mother Earth, Tribal and Twin City issues. Native American issues are human issues. We invite all people to walk hand in hand with our struggles, victories and achievements. Listen Saturdays at 2 p.m. I am Awake.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Shambot from Shambot Family Dentistry, where the fear-free, get-you-out-of-pain-now dental office. We always offer a free exam and x-rays for new patients because we believe you shouldn't have to pay to find out what's wrong with your teeth. Call today. We're open early and late and Saturdays to fit your schedule. As my daughter Rachel says,
6: If you don't see my dad, please see another dentist. Take care of your teeth because they're the only ones you get. Call 1-800-FIXMYTEETH or visit fixmyteeth.us.
3: Tom Hartman here, telling you that solar energy isn't just for environmentalists. Switching to all-energy solar is actually perfect for reducing your carbon footprint while also saving money on your monthly electric bill. The fact that solar panels cause no Earth-harming emissions while it's producing energy is a bonus. Who in the world could object to that? But they can also help you save money, month after month, for decades. And they do it with a clean footprint. So go green and start saving money today by visiting allenergysolar.com
1: So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio where we plant the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headline Nelson Johnson's not able to be with us today, but in studio we are live, so welcome your calls 952-946-6205. How do you eat to help the climate crisis. What's the best way to eat? And um, one statistic from Michael Clark um, is that ruminant meat has impacts a hundred times that of a plant-based diet. So you guys are doing a meat.
4: So I would say that depends on how it's raised. And that's particularly with grain-fed ruminant meat. And as Dan mentioned earlier, ruminants have this unique stomach system where they can digest cellulose, which is a, a particular feature of grasses, So I might just jump in and explain what a ruminant is because not everyone is familiar with what A ruminant is
3: animals that uh, are like cows and like sheep and like goats. Those are ruminants and they're able to, because of their stomach, uh, specialized stomach where they have a lot of bacteria, they can take in things that uh, we can't, like the grasses and and break down things like cellulose. So uh, ruminants are uh, specialized animals that are made to sort of forage on grasslands.
4: And and we you know ruminants have been a feature of grassland uh, ecosystems um, forever. since forever yeah. mm-hmm. since they first evolved mm-hmm. they evolved together.
1: Right. And under permaculture, um, it, it's the mixture. And so uh, an example of um, healthy uh, meat use is um, the Main Street Project down in Northfield. So they're, they're planting hazel trees, and, uh, and then they have the chickens. so the chickens can fertilize the hazel trees, and the hazelnut trees provide protection from the chickens. So we don't want to just say all meat is bad. But then we also have industrial systems that um, if, if we did to cats and dogs what we do to cows and pigs in this country, there would be outrage.
3: Yeah, I think that so. uh, the the concentrated environment where they have these feedlots, where they fatten the cattle, for example, um, you know, any place you have a lot of uh, a great concentration of animals is going to be a very difficult environment. There's a lot of disease. All these feedlots have veterinarians on staff to try and keep the animals uh, healthy, which is kind of a battle because there's so much sickness in these cows because of the concentrated environment. Uh, you know, they have massive problems with eliminating all that manure.
1: <laughs> well, and I've heard that Minnesota is the manure equivalent as if we had 50 million people because we're exporting pork to China. So our water, mm-hmm. the water of our grandchildren, suffers because of the industrial system we now have.
4: And it's so large. I mean, 40% of of, of beef animals are, are uh, finished during the last months of their lives in feedlots that are 32,000 cows or more. Not in Minnesota, we don't have any like that here, but mm-hmm. in Nebraska and places like that. So that's, um, uh, there. there's a different kind of meat production system. I mean, all cows are initially raised on grass. Mm-hmm. That's how they start their lives. So we have a number and that's called cow-calf system. We have cow-calf producers in Minnesota. Um, but then within that, there's uh, a different kinds of grazing, if you will. So that's when they're out on the land eating grass. There's something called continuous grazing. And if you drive around the countryside and you see a, a sort of poorly looking pasture that kind of looks like a weedy golf green, mm-hmm. that's continuous grazing. But if you drove around and you saw, oh, a, a nice looking pasture that always has uh, six, seven inches of, of, of vegetation growing on it, that would be more like managed rotational grazing. That's the kind of system we need to move to. You can grow more cows in the same area, and there's virtually no water runoff from that kind of system, mm-hmm. whereas a, con- uh, a continuously grazed pasture has uh, too much runoff.
1: So, as a consumer, how do I know which meat is which?
4: Well, um, you need to uh, look for the, uh, ask if it's grass fed. That's one thing. Um, and supporting at the
1: co-ops because the co-ops have at the, co-ops. the co-ops have been a leader in this. So That's knowing right. where you shop, you shop either locally and find someone that you know, or support the co-ops.
4: Yep, and and cows could be raised. They don't all have to be completely grass-fed to be good. Um, Minnesota does have winter. <laughs> Minnesota has winter, but I'll tell you, Lots of I'll tell you, um, the the farmers. Um, uh, like Dan Janicus out in western Minnesota in the Chippewa River watershed, for example, is raising cover crops in, in between corn and soybean crops. And those cover crops grow in the fall. So they're, they're green in November and even December when most of the land is black.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much, George. We've got a caller, Lynette. Good morning, Lynette. You wanted to speak up on soil erosion. Good morning. Uh, Lynette? Hello? Oh, hi, Lynette.
7: There we are. Okay. I was saying hello. Um, Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm doing awesome. I was hearing, when I was hearing kind of the, the, I I didn't hear it from the very beginning, but um, um, one of the gentlemen was talking about soil erosion, and this was during a certain uh, period, um, and I can't remember... What government that it, was under? It was, was under, under Reagan. Reagan. It
1: was under Reagan when farmers were told to get big or get out, and we're going to export yeah. to the Soviet Union, and we're going to be the industrial leader of the world.
7: <laughs> <laughs> and what I was thinking of when you were mentioning that is, I saw a documentary um, recently, and it was about the Dust Bowl, and um, yeah. you know, and I was kind of fascinated by that because. Okay, the people were causing erosion with their, you know, there was greed in the land and we're gonna grow as much wheat as we possibly can and so they were creating erosion and then, and then according to the documentary they said the government had to step in and show them how to not ruin the land so they weren't causing erosion. So to me it seems it's the flip side now like, you know, the, the government isn't in that capacity anymore to be, like, I mean, it seems like they want to let the big companies just come in and, and do that.
6: Right, or yeah.
1: we're not in charge of our government anymore. It's been hijacked yeah, I mean, I was by just, the special interest. When I interest. saw that, I was just yes. absolutely
7: floored because I'm like, what? We have totally a different type of government. Right, just like NRA
1: controls the gun policy in the country, the yeah. um, the industrial food system Controls yeah. the food policies. What do you guys jump in?
4: Well, there is a branch of the government. It's in the United States Department of Agriculture called the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and it's actually the the modern day offshoot of what Lynette was talking about, the Soil Conservation Service that was created in the in the thirties after the Dust Bowl. Um, anyway, the NRCS does uh, pay help pay for farmers to to improve their practices when they want to. So the government does do some of that, but at the same time, there's the, that's one part of the Farm Bill. The Farm Bill is a big thing. Uh, it has subsidies for more and more corn and soybean production. And one of those is, is, uh, is federally subsidized crop insurance. And so crop insurance has no caps you can have you can you can get as much coverage as you want for as much many acres for as many vast tracts of corn fields or soybean fields That's part of the problem. So there's more money going into that than there is into the conservation side.
1: And let's bring Dan Gallagher um, with the Healthy Foods, Healthy Lives Institute to this conversation because we all know that if we eat more fruits and vegetables, it's better for people. We reduce overall health costs. But the government policy goes for corn, soy, and sugar.
3: Yeah, it's one of these ironies that we always have – Two different parts of the government arguing different points of view. So we have the public health people that work for the government telling us that we should increase, you know, fruits and vegetables. So, you know, this would be uh, people that work for FDA, people that work for uh, USDA Health Service. And then we have the agricultural people that, you know, grow more soybeans, grow more wheat so that we have these more of these commodity groups. And so there's this contradiction. There's this contradiction. It's this contradiction. So
1: we're, uh, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on uh-huh. AM 950, and we're talking about the uh, meat or no meat symposium coming up on Friday, April 6. The,
6: the, the Spring St. Paul Art Crawl, presented by the St. Paul Art Collective, will be running April 27th, 28th, and 29th. This is a must-do experience that you will love. Over the weekend, you'll have the chance to explore a wide variety of art while touring through local artist studios, lofts, and galleries. Hosting over 350 artists, up for purchase will be paintings, photography, pottery, sculpture, fiber arts, and more. The Art Crawl sprawls over 34 locations. Join the Art Crawl and discover outstanding art for you to own. When you buy local art, you're providing to artists so that they may continue to create the art we love. The Metro Transit is supporting the local art community with free transit passes. Download your pass to ride buses and light rail for free during the Art Crawl. Be sure to get details at the St. Paul art That's the St. Paul art Common Roots Cafe is the perfect spot for the whole family to get delicious local and organic
1: food. They have a great kids' menu equipped with games and coloring, while parents can enjoy a great local beer, wine, or specialty cocktail. It's never been a fad or a marketing ploy to make everything from scratch with local and organic ingredients. It's always been an unwavering commitment. If they can buy it local and organic, or get it from their on-site garden, they will. Common Roots is located off 26th and Lindale and online at commonrootscafe.com.
4: Hi, this is Mike Pavantonio from Ring of Fire. Ring of Fire is a direct, smart, and I got to promise you a fearless progressive talk show. Join me, Mike Pavantonio, and my co-host Bobby Kennedy Jr. and Sam Cedar as we take on the large corporate conglomerates
3: and that radical right-wing media that dominate America's airwaves. Ring of Fire, Saturdays from 3 to 6 and Sundays from 6 to 9 p.m. On AM 950, it is the progressive voice of Minnesota.
0: P.
3: March is Auto Show Month in Minnesota, and Rudy Luther Toyota has incredible deals to make. Now's the time for huge Toyota incentives like $4,000 rebates on 2018 Avalon with interest as low as 0%. Doesn't get any lower. Rudy Luther Toyota's fair value pricing will also get you a big discount on the Hot Highlander with 0.9% financing for 60 months. Check out RudyLutherToyota.com for all the great deals going on right now. Come out and enjoy Auto Show Month at Rudy Luther Toyota, 394 and 169 in
2: Golden Valley. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Brett Johnson. Look for rain and snow today with a high near 41. Tonight, more rain and snow with a low around 23. Saturday, cloudy with a high near 25. And Sunday, sunny with a high near 34. Moe's Tax Service in Highland Park and St. Paul has been working for you, not the IRS, since 1971. With tax day approaching, they can help with all your taxes, whether you're self-employed, have a personal return, LLC, partnership, nonprofit, estate, trust, or more. Returns are usually e-filed the same day, and your refunds are fast and secure. Learn more at Moe'sTax.com. (laughs) Darren. <laughs>
1: So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headline, a student of permaculture. And uh, Karen Nelson johnson is not able to be with us today, but we are talking about a conference coming up a Friday, April 6th, called Meat or No Meat. And it's sponsored by the um, Healthy Foods, Healthy Lives Institute at the University of Minnesota. And in studio with us is George Booty. He was the executive director for 23 years of the Land Stewardship Project. And Dan Gallagher, the uh, interim director for the Healthy Foods, Healthy Lives Institute. And during break, we we wanted to talk a little bit more about soil erosion and what that means.
4: Well, just the point is there's soil erosion happening now. In fact, if you drive out in the countryside with these heavier rains that we're getting as part of climate change, you can see soil erosion on even flat fields that are just in corn and soybean production and that have been plowed that aren't, that aren't uh, being managed with no-till and cover crops. And that's a problem because when we lose soil, we're losing organic matter in in the place in the soil it's meant to be. It's flowing downstream somewhere. Some and it's
1: causing it, a dead zone?
4: Uh, the, well, that's due to nitrogen the, primarily. zone, yeah. That, and that's a a little different problem. The nitrogen is usually going down into groundwater or into what's called tile lines that are put underneath fields to move water off quickly. And then it flows through those and gets into the uh, Whatever nearest stream it is, and goes down to the Gulf of Mexico. So, uh, so that's uh, that's also a problem. Both of those can be dealt with by having more living covers. So, soil is a living is living. It's just full of all kinds of living things: bacteria, fungi, uh, all kinds of other larger organisms, earthworms. And when we treat it that way, we can stop erosion, we can infiltrate the water, that the rainfall that falls down on it. That We do that by moving away from tillage and putting more cover on the land, more living cover, living so, roots.
1: So soil is not just dirt.
4: Oh, no. And if we treat it that way, that's when we're going to have problems.
1: Well, isn't it funny that yeah. dirt even has that word in yeah. that connotation in our language?
3: And, and it's a it's a national treasury. I mean, it takes centuries and centuries to create one inch of topsoil, and in a single storm where the the uh, the land is not properly maintained, you can lose it. You know, and so uh, that's that's where the growing takes place is in the topsoil, and so we need to view it as a national treasure that we need to conserve, just like we need to conserve the forests and, and other, you know, like conserve the Great Lakes. We just don't think of soil in the same way, but we should
4: be. And Dan, what I would say is I think we're beginning to learn now that actually, and farmers are seeing that they can create topsoil more, more much more quickly than we thought. Right. Right. And one of the ways that we do that is to have ruminants back on the right, <laughs> in the soil. <laughs>
1: right. So let's get back to this conversation on meat or no meat. <laughs>
4: yeah.
3: The, uh, the The ruminants, as I said, have always been here. We've always had, um, you know, like cows in Africa because that's where they came from. Here in North America, we had the buffalo, the bison. And they were an integral part of the prairie, that, and without them, you're missing an integral part of the prairie. That you know, they provide fertilizer in their their wastes, and they they loosen the soil t- so the plants can grow better. So there's there's a place, there's an environmental place for all of these types of animals, and then uh, consequently, we evolved eating some of these animals, but we didn't wipe them out. You know, <laughs> you know, we we maintained their populations, and so.
1: So let's also bring this down back to climate change, because is part of the challenge is how do we sort of wake up to seeing the whole of the system and the consequences of individual acts?
4: Well, and, you know, if we're going to deal with climate change, honestly, really lower our emissions of various greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous, nitrogen oxides, and other things into the atmosphere. We're going to have to use less. We're going to have to get... uh, uh, Efficiency is a tricky thing because you can get more efficient and still use more.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Efficiency, I love that. Efficiency, yeah, you can get more and more efficient.
4: And then you just use more. And just use more. (laughs) Intense
1: efficiency equals inefficiency.
4: So one of the things that people talk about as a problem from... Cows or ruminant animals is that as part of as a consequence of their digestive system they emit methane, if you will. Mm-hmm. They belch methane like crazy. They do. <laughs> now that's not a new thing. That's been here for eons. <laughs> but uh, but we're if we if we in, keep increasing the number of cows, then we're you know we're adding to the problem. And and methane's a powerful greenhouse gas. But then if we grow them in with grain, then we're emitting nitrogen oxides as part of the fertilization to grow the corn in the soybeans. And then if we're eroding soil, we're losing some of that carbon in the soil to the atmosphere as carbon dioxide as part of that process. So when we put living cover on the land and, and manage ruminants in a rotational grazing way, we can actually build carbon in the soil That's called building organic matter.
1: Mm -hmm.
4: And people have seen that they can go, uh, they can build 3% organic matter, increase it by 3% over in in 10 years even with really, really good management. So
1: you're using the unrelenting application of reason. We know that soil, building soil is essential for life, essential for future. So is this the popular way of doing food now?
4: well no i would I would say it's one of the ways that we're doing food but but it's not the the main way we're doing why is food. it not
1: the main way to do food <laughs> I, I well I think they
3: the thinking is that it's hard to raise meat cheaply using some of these what is now called alternative methods as opposed to the traditional feedlot method, which is very intensive, uh, but it's it's less expensive is the argument right now. And so uh, as the population becomes, the world population becomes more fluent, and this is happening, uh, people naturally want to consume more meat in their diet. It's just part of human nature. So global. It's, this is global. And so there's more and more demand for The foods that we feed these cattle, which is corn and soybeans, because most corn and soybean does not go into human consumption. It goes into animal feed. And so that's part of the driver is that, you know, we have more animals being raised to feed a population that world population that's more fluent and they, they want meat in their diet. They like the taste of it. And
1: so what happens if if this train just keeps going and more and more people... Nothing (laughs) good. Okay, so let's go there. What what does that mean? Uh,
3: You know, we're going to have continued problems with soil erosion. That's for sure. If we don't change the way we do it. Uh, uh, Animal wastes, uh, food, uh, plant material that could be used for human food is being diverted into animal foods. And so that could be a problem in some cultures. So uh, we have to figure out a way that... We can have animals being grown because meat does have positive aspects. It is very nutritious, but yet that we don't do great damage to the environment while we're doing that. And, you know, the work that George is doing, for example, is, is very key to that.
4: And, and you know, say take hogs, for example, or chickens. We don't have to just feed them corn and soybeans. They eat a lot of different things.
1: I, we, I hear they're even eating some glam down donuts, you know. <laughs> uh,
4: for hog they so wouldn't be rise. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, uh, so let's say we just um, expanded the diets of hogs by 10% of their diet from oats.
7: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, oats is a really good crop to have on the land. It grows in the spring when we get these hard rains, and it protects the soil from being eroded by those raindrops. Um, so that would be a good thing. Yeah. And then our meat would taste a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have a greater it would just have different composition to it.
1: And how do we find ways of innovating um, a, a living food system? And we are right now on the phone is um, Linda Alvarez, and she's interested in exploring ways in which underrepresentative and marginalized groups interact and challenge and resist dominant structures of power. So welcome to the show, Linda.
8: Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. So, tell us about your involvement in the symposium that's happening Friday, April 6th, at the University of Minnesota.
8: Sure. Yeah. So, I will be there discussing uh, the concept of food and colonization, and so I'm uh, looking at it from a perspective of um, ancient Mesoamerican foods and the way that system and that food system was altered by the process of colonization um and in this region it would have been spanish colonization and um ultimately the introduction of different foods so it's not that um mesoamerican foods were 100 percent plant-based but they were largely plant-based and if there was um The inclusion of certain types of animal meats, it would have been very different than you know what we know now. So, for example, deer, uh, dog, iguana, that type of thing. Um, But a lot of that was confined mostly to uh, elite circles. Um, So, with the introduction of colonization, it it really began to change the food system as a whole. So. It brought over cows, pigs, chickens, animals that are not native to this part of the world, um, and really began to alter in a couple of ways the food system. So, first of all, by um, literally putting these animals on the ground, uh, they were allowed to graze everywhere and had a huge impact on traditional food systems, uh, mainly the milpa, which is a you know commonly known as the three sisters. So, the, the very common agricultural cheese with corn, squash, and beans. Um, animals would just trample over that, which oftentimes led to starvation in Indigenous communities. Um, and then it began to alter the, the system socially, where now beef and um, animal-based products began to have carry some kind of status associated with them. So, um, and, and we see this to this day in, in certain communities, and I think in general, uh, the fact that if you eat meat, it means you've made it, right? You've got a little bit more of of right. a income. Uh, your status is a little bit elevated. So, um, so those are the kinds of things I will be exploring in in the talk on uh, Friday.
1: Thank you, Lena. Um, last um last week I was actually in Costa Rica and I saw um all the palm miles and miles of palm. Trees from Africa planted and right near the rainforest, and and the pineapples are planted in a certain way, and it's so bad ecologically speaking. And the only word that I can come up with is it's like zombie economics, and it's the dominant mm-hmm. model is the zombie economics. Would you agree with that interpretation, Linda?
8: Yeah, you know, palm oil is has had devastating effects in Central America. Um, You know, there's huge uh, palm oil plantations in Costa Rica, and they kind of jumped over from uh, Honduras, which is where there's a uh, huge—and then it's leading to so many conflicts. Um, And so that's—I agree completely. Um, Interestingly, you know, it used to be cattle, which was causing those issues. And then as we move, you know, in terms of different products— Agricultural products. uh, Palm oil is now a huge issue, and it's uh, like I said, it's not only devastating to the environment, um, but it is causing huge conflicts between communities, uh, where we're actually dealing with violence. People, people being killed um, as they try to protect their either traditional agriculture, uh, traditional indigenous lands, um, or just. You know, uh, land yeah. that they've lived on forever. I mean, forever. someone so. was
1: someone where was that? Someone was complaining about the water pollution, and all of a sudden, some guns got shot. And you know, I yeah. mean, it, it is it exactly. is really that ugly. So when we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about how to be an ethical consumer, how to support the world that we all want to see. Everyone wants to see when we eat a bite of food. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Thank you, Linda. Tap taste and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of Vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior, online at VinaigretteMN.com.
3: Hello, this is Ellen Krug from Hidden Edges Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I'm standing in front of audiences training about diversity and inclusion and on how to be welcoming to others who are different from us. More than ever, employers and organizations need professional diversity and inclusion training. I can offer that training through my company, Human Inspiration Works, LLC. I'd love to make your workplace or organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Kevin Ross here, inviting you to our brand-new store called Ambibulous. What does Ambibulous mean? It means one who enjoys alcoholic beverages of all sorts. Ambibulous is a Minnesota maker's market. Unlike traditional liquor stores, we feature only craft beer, wine, and spirits made here in Minnesota. We are ready to guide your selections, where you can build your own four- or six-packs. Find us at 949 Hennepin Avenue East in Northeast Minneapolis or online at ambibulousmn.com.
0: Did you know that tooth decay is the most common disease in America? And that over half the American population has some form of periodontal disease? Simply brushing and flossing don't seem to be enough. The abundant bacteria in your mouth thrive off sugar to produce acid and plaque. But what if you could actually prevent bacteria from converting sugar into the harmful byproducts responsible for tooth decay and periodontal disease? Daily Dental Care is a life sciences company that leverages our microbiology expertise to create oral care products that promote strong teeth, healthy gums, and fresh breath. Our lozenges safely and effectively neutralize harmful bacteria and their disease-causing byproducts like acid and plaque without harming, health-promoting bacteria that guard your mouth against the destruction that sugar causes. Supplement your daily dental hygiene routine with our convenient dental lozenges. Go to dailydentalcares.com or Amazon to purchase and use promo code DDC95001 at checkout for a 25% discount on your first purchase.
2: These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Daily Dental Care lozenges are not intended to place daily dental hygiene practices.
4: Hi, this is Gregory Rich from Habitation Furnishing and Design, and I'd like you to tune in to a new program, Drink in the Style. Sundays at 5 p.m., Drink in the
2: Style is going to be a one-hour conversation about interior design and aesthetics,
4: all while enjoying a cocktail created by a local mixologist. Drink in the Style, Sundays at 5 p.m., brought to you by Habitation Furnishing and Design.
5: Try to see it my
1: way Do I have to keep on talking till I can go? So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we uh, nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headland, a student of permaculture. Karen Olson Johnson is not able to be with us today uh, in studio. We have George Booty. He was the former executive director for 23 years of the Land Stewardship Project, and Dan Gallagher. He is the interim director for the Healthy Foods, Healthy Lives Institute at the University of Minnesota. Which this Friday, April 6, um, they're holding a uh, spring symposium, 7:30 to 8:30, 7:30 uh, to 9, to three o'clock. Um, meat or no meat. And when we're going to break, we wanted to talk about some of the trauma now facing Minnesota farmers.
4: Well, um, nationwide, actually, and, and this is happening around the world, there's very high suicide rates for farmers. In fact, farmers have the highest suicide rate of any occupation in the United States, uh, and higher than military veterans coming back, which is not a comparison we want to make either direction. Um, so, very, I'm dep-
3: very stressful profession because it's so uncertain. Uh, farm policies are changing all the time, and farm prices are just gyrate back and forth. So, from one year to the next, you don't know what your income is going to be. It's a very stressful profession.
4: <clears throat> and they're, they're on a kind of technology treadmill, if you will, and the, and the way on, where they they're buying more and more products from the corporations that sell inputs to them. When prices go up, those prices go up, but they don't come down as much when the prices come down. Um, so uh, Monsanto's seed costs didn't really come down that much after the, the high farm prices of 2008 to 2012 started falling. But, um, so so that's, that's a problem. And the way off from that technology treadmill is to focus on soil health and the farmers that are doing that can reduce their costs of inputs here in the United States. And and uh, they just need to get out of the, the grasp of the corporations that control all of those inputs.
1: And how do we help them do that?
4: Well, I,
3: I think education is part of it and the University of Minnesota has as part of its uh, um, agricultural work uh, an outreach program. And so We have extension agents that are out there telling them um, different ways to do things, uh, trying to introduce things like no-till farming, which uh, is better on the soil. And obviously, if you don't have to be out there tilling the soil all the time, that's less expense for you, uh, less wear and tear on your tractor, less fuel for the tractor. So I think there are ways that are available. I think uh, farming is a conservative profession. if you've learned to do something one way, you don't necessarily want to change. But I think we're all that way yeah. to a certain extent. Well, and I, yeah. I,
1: again, um trying to find a farmer that you know to grow your food, buying a CSA, supporting the co-ops, you know, trying to create this um, ecosystem that mm-hmm. can uh, flourish and support each other.
4: Uh, food is an agricultural act. <laughs> so, So how you buy – what you buy <laughs> – and where you buy it from and what you're willing to pay for it, right, uh, matters. Yeah, and it, it can help make more possible on the land. So, as you say, shopping at co-ops or uh, buying organic or grass-fed or knowing the farmer that you're that you're buying from to the extent that you can. And I think um, uh, one of the farmer members of Land Stewardship Project um, who grows berries actually said, "Well, you." you we, we we've changed from paying the farmer to paying the pharmacist.
1: Ah, <laughs> I love that. That's true. Our medical costs, and for the first time, our yeah. lifespans are going down. Now, Karen, Karen called in. Um, hi, Karen. You wanted to jump in here? Good morning. Oh, good morning, Karen. Did you have a question?
5: Uh- no, um, I'm actually uh, from Loma Linda University. Oh. I'm going to be one of the speakers. Oh, yes, that's
1: so the- I'm sorry. So, Karen, you're a senior nutrition scientist, and your focus is on validating uh, biomarkers of dietary um, intake, and so you look at um, the health benefits of a vegetarian diet.
5: Yes, that's what we do at um, with a large cohort of Adventists. Um, in the U.S. and Canada, so we have a a large cohort study um, where we've uh, enrolled over ninety six thousand um, Adventist adults.
1: So you've studied in North America. So you're studying ninety six thousand adults, and what are you learning?
5: Yes, we're, well, we're learning many things, actually. So, so what we do is we look at, we analyze the. Uh, diets of, of these um, people, and we look at it from the nutrient uh, level. We can also look at the food level, and we also analyze the di- diet at the dietary pattern level. So in the dietary pattern level, uh, we group people according to the way they eat, and so we've identified those who are vegans, lacto-ovo vegetarians. We've also found some who are pescatarians uh, and semi and non-vegetarians and so um, so then we look at their experience um, with other uh, with diseases or um, um, risk of disease disease if you, if you will and so and we're actually finding um, uh benefits of consuming a plant-based diet
1: so, um, so can you so? And you're going to be speaking at the meat or no meat um, symposium. That's this yes, Friday, April sixth. You're one of the speakers. Yes. So, is a um, vegetarian diet healthy?
5: It is. It's healthy, and we've been able to show that um, consuming a vegetarian diet is uh, associated with lower body mass index, um, of lower markers of inflammation. Um, People who are also on vegetarian diets have lower odds of having metabolic syndrome or hypertension, um, diabetes. Um, We've also shown that in a larger cohort that um, vegetarian diets are associated with lower total cardiovascular disease, cancer, and cancer mortality. Wow. Um, well, this is—I mean that, cancer and possibly prostate cancer. So, these, wow. this is what we're finding. From this is our, really
1: exciting. Now, now, you're just giving a sampler, and we're down to our last few minutes. So, um, I thank uh, you so much for calling in, Karen. And if people want to hear more, they can go to the symposium on Friday, April 6th, um, at the university. And Dan, again, tell us how we find out about the information in this symposium.
3: Uh, you can register at the door, so if you want to come, it's going to be at the Hubert H. Humphrey Center. Uh, but you can also register online. The uh, registration can be accessed at, uh, on the web at uh, w, uh, excuse me, hfhl.umn.edu.
4: George, did you
1: want to jump in at all?
4: I'll just say that uh, another way you can approach changes on the land and in terms of our farm policy is to join an organization like Land Stewardship Project. We are a membership-based organization, 4,000 household members, farms, rural and urban people, and that you can help make change that way and, and, and meet farmers, go out and talk with them, learn what they're doing.
1: You have the best potluck in in the Twin Cities forever. I mean I I I've, I've been a member for a long time and the steward your potluck um is a great event. Do you know what day that's going to be by it's, the It's
4: I don't know yet, but it's usually later in Ju- in July on a Thursday. So just uh, Watch us on Facebook or on on the on the web.
1: So I want to uh, thank uh, Karen for calling in. She's a senior nutrition scientist. Linda Alvarez, um, she's interested in exploring underrepresented and marginalized groups. And Dan Gellaher, um the interim director for the Healthy Foods, Healthy Lives Institute. And George Booty, um, uh, former executive director of Land Stewardship Project. And I thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.
7: Over yeah, woman. Ready.